Well, if you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to John chapter 4. Going to continue on as we pick up after Easter Sunday with our study through John. If you remember, if you have no idea where the book of John is, that's okay. It's in the New Testament. Feel free to use the table of contents. You'll go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look for the big number four at the top. That's the chapter that we're in. And then we are going to look at verses 1 through 30, so a big chunk this morning. And as you're turning there to the Gospel of John, I want to tell you about a 60 Minutes interview that happened back in 2005 between Tom Brady and Steve Croft. Maybe you've heard of Tom Brady. Currently, he's a seven-time Super Bowl winning quarterback, multiple times over millionaire, married to a supermodel. Back then in 2005, he was just a chump with only three rings, but he still had the money and he still had the supermodel wife. And he was interviewed by Steve Croft, and here's what he said as he was just kind of reflecting on his career at that moment. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reach my goal, my dream, my life, and me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this, isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Steve Croft asked, well, then what's the answer? Brady responded, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. I love playing football and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Croft asked, which of the rings do you like best? What's your favorite ring? Brady responded, my favorite ring, I've always said, as you know, I've always said the next one. The next one is the best. In a similar statement back in the 1930s, you remember, and we are just reminded there's nothing new under the sun. John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money does it take to, man, to make a man happy? His response has gone down in history, just one more dollar. Just one more. Now, you might not be able to relate to the lives of Brady and Rockefeller. I can't. But I bet you can relate to that heart struggle because it's a struggle that we all have regardless of age. We are on a constant quest for significance. We are on a constant quest for satisfaction at the heart level to where we can finally be able to rest. But the problem is we struggle with this thing called idolatry. Idolatry is basically taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing in your life. It is the thing that you look to and basically, functionally, you are bowing down and worshiping it instead of the one true and living God. That's the heart of idolatry. We looked at this this morning in our Confession of Faith, Jeremiah chapter 2, or uh, verses 12 and 13. Where it said, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. This is the Lord looking at what, God's, what His people have done and asking the heavens to look at this and be shocked. It says, For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We think about the struggle that we all have, and it's always one more dollar, one more like, one more pound to lose, one more A, one more this, one more that, the cycle goes on. Grades, money, power, influence, attention on social media, our appearance, etc., etc., etc. All of these are fake cisterns that will eventually run dry and leave us dry too. 
They were never meant to satisfy. Like a cistern, and a cistern is just basically a fancy word for like a big holding bucket of water. That's basically what it is. So like a cistern, these things require constant input to appear full. So to make the, to make the cistern look like it's full, you have to go and you know, keep adding to it. It doesn't have a water source on its own. And we feel this dryness at the heart level, but we typically try to tackle it from the outside in. Instead of seeking change from the inside out, we usually just modify our behavior. But as we all know, there's only so much change that you can affect through behavior modification before you run out of willpower and you end up dry again and worn out. Many in this room have tried to tackle their spiritual lives this way through sheer willpower. Behavior modification, changing your church, changing your surroundings, your music, your relationships, etc., And the problem with this approach, and I think the thing that we've all found out, because we've all tried to do this, is that your heart makes the trip too. And it doesn't take long to figure out that the problem might actually not be out there. It might actually be here. You ever move to a new town and it seems like the same old problems pop up? You may change the social circle, you may change your church, whatever it is, and it seems like You're having to have the same conversations over and over and over and over and over again. At some point you go, well, maybe the problem's not out there. Maybe the problem's here. But this is where the hope of the gospel message comes in. Because it offers us real and lasting change at the heart level that then frees us up to live an authentic life. Because the gospel changes us from the inside out. Instead of just behavior modification... Notice we at the church don't give you a list of like, these are all the things you need to do to be a good Christian. Like you need to dress this way and act this way and do whatever else. We don't give you a checklist. We just put Jesus in front of you each week and pray that the Holy Spirit would take that gospel message and apply it to your heart and change us all from the inside out. Jesus once spent time with a woman at Jacob's well and her, her story shows us how this gospel change happens. Okay, so with that in our mind, let's look at John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 30. I'm going to read at a good clip. So buckle up. Here we go. Okay, let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank it from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered her, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water 
so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where we people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm very thankful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to this text. We need it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to your word with humility, thankful for your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you've given us the gift of the scriptures. But yet, Lord, we need your help as we look to it, and so speak to our hearts this morning. Father, even if it says hard stuff, Lord, help us to receive it with humility because we know and remember that these are the words of life. So, Father, we ask and pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. As we think about this, at a basic human level, we all need water to survive, right? There's the big three, water, food, and shelter. Those are the big three things that you need. I think they've added a fourth space. But water, food, and shelter is what I grew up hearing. And uh, Lenny Bernstein, in an article in the Washington Post years ago, went on and on, and he talked about the effects of severe dehydration on our bodies. And he said a couple of things that were pretty interesting. He said, number one, our, our cells actually begin to shrink. Our brain cells shrink, leading to delusions and, and possibly a coma. And the brain can actually shrink so much to the point in severe dehydration that it actually pulls away from the vessels in the skull. It's the effects of a lack of water in our, in our lives, a severe lack of water. And so the basic big point of that article was that our bodies need constant water intake to function properly and survive. I think we all know that, especially down here in the South when we start sweating buckets in a few months that you need to put water in because there's a lot of water coming out. It's no surprise then as we look at this, as this text this morning that Jesus used the metaphor of water to describe, he kind of used it like a teaching aid, to describe how we need constant spiritual intake to function properly at the heart level. Now by now you may have figured out that living water is another way to talk about soul satisfaction, rest, the promise of eternal life through grace and through Christ. And it lies in stark contrast to the effort required to build and maintain the dry cisterns that we mostly look to for satisfaction, and they leave us tired from all of that constant work that it requires. The big question this morning that we're going to look at is, what does this passage teach us about living water? Fair question, right? If you're a note-taking type of person, we're going to look at eight things. No, I'm just kidding. It's just two. All right, so two... Two things, just seeing if y'all are still listening. 
We're going to look at two things in classic Latham fashion. Number one, we're going to look at the source of living water, verses 1 through 15. And then number two, we're going to look at the effects of living water, verses 1 through 18. I saw some of your eyes get really big when I said eight. Let's look at that first point, one of two, the source of living water. That's our first half of our text, okay? So you may remember a few weeks ago in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, this Nicodemus, who was a religious insider, a ruler of the Jews, a Sanhedrin, he's kind of like a senator in the ruler of the Jews and the Pharisees. He met with Jesus at night, and they talked about the necessity of a spiritual rebirth from above. And now we see Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. The sixth hour is noon. So you have Nicodemus in the middle of the night, and you have this Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. And they, <clears throat> they meet in a town called Sychar, which is a valley town between two low mountains. That kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? And for centuries, there had been tension between the Jews and Samaritans. Pious Jews actually saw them as ritually unclean, racially impure half-breeds, and they avoided them like the plague. And many would often take the longer route between Judea and Galilee, to avoid becoming ritually unclean. So when we think about the town of Samaria, this region of Samaria, pious Jews would actually take a longer way around to not have to go through there. Unbelievable tension between the two. And I want you to keep this historic tension between Jews and Samaritans as we, in mind as we study this narrative, okay? Remember, these things happened in real space and time to other people in real space and time. And so what was going on in history at the time matters. And so you have Jesus, who is a Jew, and you have this Samaritan woman, and there's this historical tension between these two groups. I want you to keep that in mind. Now in verse 4, it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It was not only the shortest route, he also had a divine appointment, and he was also not afraid of ritual defilement. It was all part of the providential sovereign plan of God the Father for Jesus to go through here. And in verse 5, we see this field that's mentioned in Joshua 24, verse 32. It says, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob brought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of, mo of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And the Samaritans also laid claim to the patriarchs, which the Jews obviously despised, because they saw it as a lie and a hijacking of their heritage. So, you know, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, kind of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. And what you would have is the Samaritans going, oh, yeah, yeah, we like that guy too. We're, we're part of Jacob's lineage. And so, again, it's just that tension over and over again. In verse 6, what we see as the narrative moves along, we see the full humanity of Jesus on display as he's tired and weary from the journey, and he arrives at Jacob's well, and he sits down. ESV translates as sits down beside. Other translations say sat on the well. But either way, they're sitting there next to the well. And here's a long quote from Kenneth Bailey. He wrote a quote, uh, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, and he looked at the Gospels. Uh, and here's what he said. He said, The capstone over Jacob's well in Samaria is still in place. It's 18 to 20 inches thick and about 5 feet across with a small hole in the center for lowering a bucket. And the capstone keeps dirt from blowing into the well and prevents children from falling into its dangerous depths. It also provides a working service to assist travelers in transferring water into a jar or leather bag. Middle Eastern wells do not have buckets attached to them. Each traveling group must have its own. <clears throat> it is still possible to buy such buckets in the covered market in Aleppo, Syria, 
Cross sticks in the top keep the soft leather mouth open to allow the bucket to fill as it's lowered into the well. And when it's not in use, the traveler can roll up the bucket for transport. The text assumes that Jesus and the disciples had such a bucket, but the disciples had taken it with them to the city. Jesus could easily have requested that they leave it behind for its use, but he had a plan. By deliberately sitting on the well and without a bucket, Jesus placed himself strategically to be in need of whomever appeared with the necessary equipment. I thought that was helpful. Here's with the well. They had a little leather bag. You'd put cross sticks in it. You would lower that down. There wasn't what we think about, which is like the well hanging out with the bucket hanging from it all the time. But you had to bring your own bucket. And so Jesus is sitting there strategically placed for whoever may come along with the proper equipment to draw water from the well. And wouldn't you know it, verse 7, a woman approaches with that necessary equipment. His divine appointment has arrived. And many of you probably heard that in ancient Near Eastern culture, women came to draw water in a group in the mornings and the evenings to avoid the heat. So by coming by herself in the middle of the day, the original audience would have immediately picked up that there's something different about this lady, that she must be a social outcast. Why is she not coming with the rest of the women in the group in the morning or the evening? She's coming all by herself at possibly the worst time to make the journey to draw water in the middle of the hot day. Scholars have also identified that a well is actually, they thought a well is actually closer to where she came from. And so she is obviously too ashamed to go to that well. And so you think twice a day she's coming and she's making this trip, this extra trip she's making in the middle of the hot day to go to a well that's farther away because she doesn't want to go to the one that's closer to her. Again, I just want you to think social outcast, social outcast. That's what I want you to have in your mind. So Jesus stayed seated, which is also a social taboo. He should have gotten up and given her 20 feet distance. He should have socially distanced himself from the lady. And he actually initiates a conversation with her, which is another social taboo. And the disciples would later marvel at this in verse 27 when they come up and they're like, why is he talking to her? In verse 9, she immediately picks up on these taboos and understands the history between the two. And look at what it says in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Greek word used there that's translated no dealings with actually means not use things jointly. For it said, we Samaritans and and Jews, we don't touch the same stuff. We don't use the same things. In verse 10, Jesus now begins to speak to her spiritual need. And look at what he says in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You see, Jesus takes his own need for water. Remember, he's tired and weary from the journey. And then he uses that as a teaching aid to describe what is going on in her heart. Living water in the Old Testament a lot of times talked about cleansing from sin. It had this idea to it. And similar to his conversation with the Pharisees at the cleansing of the temple, Jesus refers to himself and initially the connection does does not get made in verse 11. He says, the woman says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Just totally missed it. You know, when Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he says, tear down this temple in three days, I'll build it up. And they go, sir, it's taken 40 years for us to rebuild the temple. And the whole time he's like, I'm, that's me. That's the same thing that's going on. It just, it just whips over her head. 
On the surface, the well looks very stagnant. You know, you look down and it's like kind of a, 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 a smooth surface on the top, but underneath it all is a living spring that continuously resupplies the well. And what Christ is pointing to is he's pointing to himself and said, I'm the living water. I am that fountainhead. I am the thing underneath it all that is resupplying the well. That's me. I'm that living water. In verse 12, the woman's response is kind of sarcastic. She says, do you think that you're better than our father Jacob? And notice she also says, our father. That's again, that's kind of like a dig. Like, yeah, we like Jacob. Are you better than our father Jacob? Kind of claiming that false lineage. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus responds with a contrast by again referring to the well. He says, everyone who drinks from a worldly well will thirst again because it can never truly satisfy. But everyone who receives the gift of living water, i.e. salvation by grace, the work of the Holy Spirit, will never thirst again. They'll finally be satisfied. And the question is why? Why will they be satisfied if this happens in their hearts? Because a spring will be created in their hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit and it will never run dry. And the abundance will last into eternity regardless of the circumstances. And this has been the claim of Christians throughout. That come what may, come all hardship, we look for hope outside of this world. We look to hope in Jesus, the true fountainhead. You ever sung the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? That's that. No, it says, I will cause this spring to well up in your heart that will constantly be replenished because I will remind you, your spirit will testify with my spirit that you are the children of God. And so all of those great benefits, assurance of God's, as our confession says, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase in grace and perseverance until the very end. All of these benefits that accompany and flow from justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all of these promises, even though you might not feel like it. We talked about that last week. We remember and we claim what is true, even if we don't feel like it, even when life gets hard. Jesus said, regardless of those circumstances, I will cause a heart change to happen in you, that you will have this abundant source of joy and life in your heart, that you can lay down the pickaxe and stop trying to do it yourself. A good example of this, somebody you may be familiar with, is Johnny Erickson Tata. Dove in, broke her neck, quadriplegic, and she is one of those people that the devil hates. Because despite all circumstances, despite being a quadriplegic in her young age, she could have given up, but instead the Lord has used her to bless millions. And she has joy in her heart. She says, God has been kind. I'm still alive. I can't use my arms. I can't use my legs. I can use my voice. I can still pray. And I can also learn how to take a pen or a pencil or a paintbrush in my mouth and paint and create and do. And you think you look at that and that woman had every right to be able to, to just be bitter. But instead, she said, it was the Lord's plan. It was the Lord's plan. As one of our hymns say, the Lord has seen fit to cross my fair design. All the plans that I had, the Lord had another plan. And in the end, his plan is better. And so you think about what is going on. That is the claim of Christianity. That is the claim of what happens, this gospel transformation that happens in our heart, that come what may, we have joy and we have peace. 
the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things that the Lord gives us freely. But even then, look at verse 15. Similar to Nicodemus, the woman takes him literally, and she responds in a very pragmatic way. She's like, oh, give me that water. I want some of that, because I'm tired of coming here to draw it. And notice, even in her heart, what's going on. She wants the product offered, not the spiritual relationship. She wants the product offered, not the spiritual relationship. Because remember, Jesus earlier said, if you knew who I was, me, I will give you this. She said, okay, give me the water. But not so much relationship. But now we see and point to the effects of living water. Look at verses 16 and 18. Seeing that she was at least open to some change, Jesus asked the woman to do something that seemed incredibly rude and unnecessary. In the south, we're like, that's kind of tacky. That's forward. He's about to point to another broken cistern in her life that she's looking to for satisfaction. Remember, he said, I'm living water. And all of a sudden, this random question in verse 16 that seems so forward and rude, but what he's doing is using the lady's own attempt to try to dig her own well to show her her idolatry, to show her what she is looking to for satisfaction other than Christ. Look at what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you said is true. What he's doing is he's, he's kind of pointing at this thing, that this is the thing that you were looking to for satisfaction relationships, men, physical intimacy. These are the things that you're looking to to satisfy you. And what we see is a pattern that, yes, you've had five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. Don't you see? With divine precision, Jesus points to the source of her shame, and she acknowledges it. In verse 19, she realizes that Jesus knows her heart, and he has shown her how dry her life really is. And so in verse 20, she quickly changes the subject to religion, doesn't she? Look in verse 20. On verse 19, the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Whoa, how do you know that? Verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She quickly changes it and brings up something. She brings up religion. Now, we typically deflect with talk about weather, sports, kids, etc. When someone brings up what we're ashamed of or we feel like somebody actually wants to have a heart conversation with us, welcome to my life. I'm a pastor. That's it. Conversation over. Welcome to my life when I try to talk about spiritual matters with others or, uh, or people find out I'm a pastor and all they want to talk about is my view of the end times as if that's the only thing we can talk about. But here's the thing, we typically deflect, and you and I have all done it, we typically deflect when we feel like somebody is actually trying to press in and actually get kind of behind our veneer that we keep up. Oh, we're so good at this in the South. I'm okay, everything's fine, and you're a wreck. You're an absolute wreck underneath. And you're so afraid that somebody might actually love you enough to come and have a conversation with you and actually maybe talk about spiritual things. And so you deflect and you talk about anything else other than that. I do it too. But here's the thing, there's a better way to live. We all know down south that nobody likes a meddler, but sometimes, sometimes we need somebody. Aren't you thankful for the people in your life that have loved you enough to come and have a hard conversation with you? 
and have actually gone beyond the weather and sports and all that. And they're actually, how are you doing? I'll remind you yet again, it is my job, it is my joy to hang out with you. I would love to set up dinner, coffee, whatever, and talk about your life. I can't make you do it. I'm not going to show up on your house, and I'm not going to make you sign up, but I am here. Your elders are here. We love you. Please let us serve you. If you are a wreck on the inside, I'm talking to guys and girls. If you are a wreck on the inside, please talk to somebody. Please let us help you. I would love to have a full calendar. I, the thing I want to do, I don't want to sit in my office. I would love to have a full calendar of meetings with you. Let's do it. Let's talk about your life. What we see here is this lady asks about this ancient debate between Jews and Samaritans about the place of proper worship. The Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim and the Jews, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And she wants Jesus to weigh in. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus says that both groups are wrong because they're too focused on the place and the trappings of their respective temples and holy sites instead of realizing that the Messiah was in their midst. This is similar to John chapter 1, verse 26, when the Pharisees were sent to spy on John the baptizer, and he says, one who is greater than me is in your midst, and you totally missed him. Same thing. The Samaritans only used the Pentateuch as scripture. That's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Penta 5, first five books of Moses. They used that as their scripture, so their system of worship was incomplete because it had no clear object, where Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. His harshest remarks are for the Jews because they had been the recipients of God's covenant promises and they still missed it. They should have known better because they knew the promise of the coming Messiah and had more scripture to point to. Remember we said the Old Testament says what? Somebody's coming. He says we, remember he uses the we, we missed it. My people, they missed it. He uses that plural pronoun to speak of his own people, the Jews, and Look in verse 23 and 24. Now Jesus talks about true worship that's not tied to geography and ritual and temple trappings and all that. It's more than that. Here's what Sproul said. He said, Jeremiah, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, told the people of Israel that their worship had become dead, outward, exterior formalism. They went through the motions. They recited the prayers. They sang the hymns, but their hearts weren't in it. God doesn't want that kind of worship. That's dead religion. That's not authentic faith. We're to come with Him come to him with hearts filled with a sense of awe and reverence and adoration. The worship we offer is a sacrifice of praise to his name. The application point that we're all looking at and the, the gut reaction, kind of gut check here, is God is not interested in religious performance that looks like a dry cistern. He wants people who will worship him. So the question then is, what motivates your worship this morning? Is it a sense of moralistic duty, i.e., that's what I'm supposed to do? I come to church because that's what you're supposed to do. Or is your heart gripped by a sense of your own need for a Savior and gripped by the reality that God provided His own Son as that Savior? I stand amazed at the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could ever love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Stand in awe of that. That is a great motivation for our praise as we look and we ask, Why me, O oh Lord? To the point where you go, God, aren't you so lucky to have, have me on your team? You need to repent. Okay, God does not need you. 
That's something I repent of every week. Well, I'm a minister. Look at what God is... I need to repent. Repent before the Lord and say, Lord, you don't need me. You can take me out tomorrow. Grace presence is just going to be fine. It's existed before me. It will exist after me. I need to repent. And we look at this. And we ask, what motivates your worship this morning? And I want you to note, we don't order our worship around what makes us feel good. Uh-oh. We order our worship around what God wants. And where do we find that? In His Word. And this is what it means to worship Him in spirit, from the core of our being, and in truth, according to His standards, not our own. Not our own preferences. We need to ask the Lord, Lord, how do you want to be worshipped? How do you define worship? It doesn't matter whether I feel good about it. Maybe we're going to sing a song that you might not like. You're going to be okay. Okay? The big question is, are the lyrics Christ-honoring? There are songs we pick out, and there are songs that we do not put in front of you because we feel like they honor man more than they honor God. It's why we put a confession of sin in our worship service each and every week. It's not something fun that you like to do, but it's what God asks us to do. And so we come before Him and we ask the Lord, how can we worship you? How do we worship you in spirit and in truth? Not according to our preferences. We've got to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us and refresh us as we return to Christ our fountainhead each Lord's Day as a church and every day individually. Look at verses 25 and 26. The discussion about worship brings the woman back to the real issue. Look at what she says in verses 25 and 26. She's tried to get Jesus off on a rabbit trail. Jesus is having none of it. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Could you imagine this promised Messiah who's coming? And he says, guess what? That's me. I'm here. Just as our worship must draw our hearts back to what really matters, Christ as we talked about in the beginning, if we're functionally worshiping or offering our hearts to anything other than Christ, it's a fool's errand because it's just an empty cistern that only requires more and more and will leave us high and dry in the end. Money, sex, power, grades, athletics, outward beauty, whatever it is, social status, all those things are fake wells. And the double warning in this passage this morning is that we can worship religion and Christian stuff more than we, more than we worship Jesus Christ. That's still idolatry in a fake well. I know Reformed people that love their Reformed theology and their books more than they love Jesus. You, you do realize that you can worship Christian-y stuff and religious-y stuff and miss Jesus. That's the story of the Pharisees, ladies and gentlemen. So our worship must draw our hearts back to Christ and what He has done. We preach Christ crucified. That's what we do each and every week. But if we trust the whole Christ by faith alone, who He is, what He came to do because of our sin, what He accomplished on the cross to redeem us and His promised return, He promises to be our eternal fountainhead and has also promised a helper and a guarantee, the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 16 to 18. You want some good news? Here you go. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him, uh-oh, 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The good news this morning is that even if life looks as dry as a desert right now, if you are in Christ, there is a river of life flowing underneath you that is carrying you to Christ himself. As hard as life is, it is not a dry cistern. It does not have a hole in it. It is Christ the fountainhead. It is an oasis in the midst of the desert. And Jesus promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will cause this to well up in your life. And I will remind you each and every day, even when you forget it, even when you run away, that you are a child of God and that I love you and call you to return to the fountainhead. That's what I do each and every week. I feel like I preach the same sermon each and every week. Y'all, do a backflip in the grace of God. It's there. The gospel's real. It's true. Is life hard? Sure it is. Is life always fun? No. But Jesus is alive. And if that's true, it changes absolutely everything. Go tell your friends and neighbors about it. You got some tired people in your neighborhood, I guarantee you. They might think you're a meddler at first, but you say, man, I got to tell you something. There's good news. There's grace. What that means is you're laying in the hospital bed, you're in Christ. Guess what? The river of life is flowing through. You got a spouse or a loved one that dies on you. Guess what? The river of life is flowing through. You don't have a lot of money in the bank. You're wondering what's happening. Guess what? The river of life is still flowing because Jesus is still on the throne. And he promises, I'm going to bring you all the way back to me. So how do we respond this morning? Why should we care? Look at verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. See, what the woman does here is really interesting. She leaves the symbol of her shame in the story. That's that water jar, right, that kept her coming back day after day and wearing her out. She leaves that. She leaves behind the symbol of her unending quest for satisfaction. Why? Because she had found true living water, redemption, forgiveness from the truer and better Jacob's well, Jesus Christ. And trusted in who he said he was, the promised Messiah. Said, God, could this be true? Notice Jesus didn't ask her to purify herself before he would help her. She was redeemed by grace through faith in the midst of her shame, and that means that there's hope for you too. If you are here today and you are thinking that, oh, I'm too sinful and I'm too messed up for God to ever love me, I've got some really good news for you. Jesus is in the business of redeeming and reclaiming broken, messed up people. I, for one, am a trophy of that. And many of you are as well. Jesus is in that business, ladies and gentlemen. He is in the business of taking the dry well of your heart and causing the flowers of the gospel to bloom in the midst of it, even when it looks rocky. Jesus is in that business. So the questions are, are you tired of being thirsty in your soul? Are you tired of going to the fake well over and over and over again, whatever it is? How would your life look different if you were able to stop digging your own well of significance and start resting next to the endless well of living water? The big question this woman dealt with is the same big question we all must deal with. Is Jesus really who he says he is? Remember, he says, I'm the Messiah. That's me. Self-identified. That's really unique. He says, that's me. Is he really the Messiah? 
Everybody says there was this guy named Jesus who was a good moral teacher who died on a Roman cross. The big question, though, is was he the Son of God? Because if he was, and he did rise victorious over the grave, remember, the evidence for his resurrection is not in doubt. Jesus rose from the grave. So then, what do you do with it? Is his message really true? What do we do with Jesus? I close with this quote from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that the, the really foolish thing that people often say about him, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral, a great human teacher. He's not left us open to do that. He did not intend to. So the question this morning as we stare at this text is, who do you say that Christ is today? Is he a lunatic or is he your Lord? That's what I offer. Who is Christ to you today? Are you doing religious stuff just because it's what you're supposed to do in the South? Or is your heart gripped by the reality of the gospel? So much so that you can't help but do anything but that. And spend the rest of my life going, if that's really true, I will spend the rest of my life saying thank you and praising you. Come what may, because you have caused this heart change from the inside out and I cannot see my world the same way again. You have caused this living water to well up in my heart. And now, despite the circumstances, I can have joy and I can have peace of conscience. And thank you, Lord. So who is Christ to you today? That's the big question. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for your word. Every bit of it's true. And we do stand in awe of you. Stand in awe of the grace that you have shown us. Lord, we do pray that if we are looking to any other dry well, if we are looking to anything apart from you, that you would reveal it to us, O oh Lord. We have blind spots, and they're called blind spots for a reason. We don't see. So, Lord, we need you. Reveal to us this week, this afternoon, whenever it is, reveal to us, O oh Lord, the blind spots that we have in our hearts. And help us, O oh Lord, to turn from these idolatrous things and look to you and you alone for our soul satisfaction and our rest. And Lord, we are thankful that you are in the business of redeeming and reclaiming broken, messed up people like us. And Lord, may we leave behind our, our broken cisterns. And Lord, may we run to you the water and the river of life. And so, Father, we thank you that you are that. Christ, we praise you for all that you have done. And Lord, may we worship you and may we exalt your name. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. That is our prayer, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.